Shalom and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week in Jewish communities throughout the world, the Torah portion known as Bo is read. Bo covers Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. And in it, God brings the final three plagues upon the Egyptians. The Israelites leave Egypt and receive the commandment to observe Passover. So it concludes the narrative regarding the Israelites' stay in Egypt that had begun in Genesis with Joseph being sold into slavery and sets the stage for the Israelites' journey in the wilderness. To give us more specificity about the content of the Torah portion before we talk about it in depth, let me remind you that it is in this Torah portion that God brings the plague of locusts. As God says, Moses, this time tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let my people go, I will bring locusts to swarm the land. Moses warned the Pharaoh of the coming locust plague. His staff urged him to let the Hebrews go. But Pharaoh would only relent enough to let the men go and not the women and children. Moses rejects this offer, and soon God sent so many locusts that according to the Torah, the land was black with them. In response to this, Pharaoh summoned Moses. I have sinned against your God, he says, and against you, Moses. Please forgive me and have your God remove the plague of locusts. God asked, uh, Moses asked God to remove the plague and God did so. But he also, according to the text, hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he again refused to let the Jews go. Then came the plague of darkness. For three days, the Egyptians were plagued by complete darkness, while the area where the Hebrews lived had plenty of light. Pharaoh once again summoned Moses and said, your people may leave, but do not take your animals. No, responds Moses, we all go, including our livestock, No, shouted Pharaoh, Moses, get out of here. The next time I see your face, you will die. Moses says, you are right. We shall never meet in person again. And our Torah portion goes on to say that God said to Moses, my last plague will make Pharaoh insist you leave. This plague will signal the beginning of the months for the Israelites. Tonight at midnight, I will go among the Egyptians and kill every firstborn. Now no Hebrew firstborn shall die if they follow my instructions exactly. First, God says, have all the Hebrews ask the Egyptians for their objects of gold and silver. They will give easily to you since they hold you in high esteem. Then make sure every household has a lamb. These lambs are to be slaughtered as a community, and then each family will return to their home and place some lamb's blood on each side of the doorposts. Then each family shall eat 
with a roasted lamb, unbread, unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. And some of you I can hear already saying, doesn't this sound as if it's the beginning of the Passover Seder? This 14th day of the beginning of months shall be known to you as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It shall celebrate among all the Jewish generations for seven days. No unleavened bread may be eaten during this time. On the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, every Jew will remember and retell the story of how God brought the Hebrew slaves out of bondage in Egypt. In the middle of the night, just as God had warned, God killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Young and old, rich and poor, human and animal, all the firstborns were killed. And throughout Egypt, there was a loud cry, for there was no house untouched by this plague. Immediately, Pharaoh demanded Moses and Jews leave Egypt. The Jews hurried from the land, carrying their unleavened dough before it could even rise. Moses said again God's commandment to the Israelites. This is the law of the Passover offering. You must remember this day as a covenant between me and my people. Remember this day you were freed from Egypt by God to go to the land of milk and honey. Remember this day for all generations honor me by not eating any unleavened bread. Remember also, Moses says in God's name, to redeem every firstborn, whether animal or child, so that your children will ask, what does this mean? Then you can answer to them, it was with a mighty hand that the Lord brought out all of us from Egypt out of the house of bondage. And so with that, the episode of Jewish slavery concludes. And we are left with a number of questions about this week's Torah portion. To share with me some of his thoughts on this week's Torah portion, Bo is Rabbi Mark Levin of Perry Village, Kansas, in the United States. Rabbi Levin is the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Torah in Overland, Kansas. He is the author of Praying the Bible, Making Each Prayer Experience Unique, and a well-known commentator in his own community on the weekly Torah portion. Uh, Good morning, uh, Rabbi. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to have you here. And as the audience uh, has already heard, we're at the uh, conclusion of the narrative regarding the Israelites and uh, in Egypt. And in this week's parasha, we hear and read about the final three plagues and the verse that stands out with regard to the plagues, of course, is uh, the phrase that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Of course, earlier in the Torah, it says God, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, but I thought that would be a good place to begin. Namely, how do you explain to those you teach about the intentionality of the plagues and their meaning, and this phrase, which is connected to it, um, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Right. So uh, a lot of folks want to read uh, the plague as an historical occurrence, as opposed to a good story with a point. 
Um, so the good story with the point, uh, to my mind, is, is this. Uh, from the very beginning of the Torah in Genesis, we see already that God has a partnership with humanity, uh, which, if you take an historical perspective, uh, is different than the other nations in the Middle East, in which the gods were capricious and didn't pay attention to human beings and didn't have regard for human beings. So here we have a partnership uh, between God in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and all of humanity, and then after that between God and the Hebrews or the Israelites or the Jewish people, and it's that story. So uh, the first two projects fail, which is to say God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and they don't do so well there, and they're put out. And then uh, there's ten generations, and, and humanity doesn't do so well, and God starts over uh, after Noah. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, you see that God starts over once again, with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. And the idea there uh, is that God will select a family and bless them when they do the right thing and perhaps curse them when they don't do the right thing. And in that way, all of humanity will come to have a partnership with God because they will see that God's people are blessed uh, when they live in accordance with, with God. So here the Israelites have gone down uh, to Egypt, which is already predicted in Genesis chapter 15, and they sojourn there for 400 or 430 years or whatever, and they come out. And so this story is the culmination in which Pharaoh, who has set himself up as God, a human being who pretends that he is God and is in control, and all the other people in Egypt at this point uh, are indentured servants or slaves to him, and he owns all the land, uh, and he contends that everything belongs to him, and he is a total ruler, but the uh, judge of all the earth, the true God, uh, has a, a competition, so to speak, in which he shows that, no, you are not God, uh, I will bring my people out, I will take them to the land that I have destined them for, you will be defeated, and then the Edomites and the Moabites and all the other nations will know that there is only one God of all the world. And so, I don't think that... Uh, uh, ten plagues can be taken uh, historically, although I know that some people want to do that, and they do, go to great pain, pains trying to explain how they might have occurred. Rather, it's a very good story that says it's God that's in control, uh, the God of Western religions, the Abrahamic faith. It is that God that controls the destiny of humanity, and he will demonstrate that uh, Pharaoh or the successors to Pharaoh are in fact not God's, uh, that we need to live under the dominion of the one God of the entire universe. That's the story to me. So just let me clarify for our listeners. So you're suggesting that as you understand the story and as you teach it, it's not so much about whether this is a true story, as we understand the word truth, but rather that this is um, an intentional uh, decision by the authors of the Torah, however we might understand the authorship of the Torah, to create a um, historical memory for the Israelites in which they are uh, reminded of their relationship with God and the importance of that relationship with God. Yes? 
Uh, yes, but not just that the Israelites, but it's a demonstration for all of humanity. And let me take exception with the use of the word true. Uh, I like your use of the word historical. Okay. It's presented as though it were historical, but of course it is, it is not historical. It is an attempt to portray a truth, which is that truth being that there is one God of the entire universe, and we, in, we live in relationship to that God. We keep God's commandments. Uh, we, we live according to God's rules and God's vision uh, for the world. And therefore, we are living uh, out a, not just a faith, but the best possible way to live in this world. The Bible is a book about how to live in this world. And that, to me, is a truth. The fact that we portray the truth uh, in a story that is in, of interest to human beings, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so it's a um, book which expresses truth, not one truth. Um, it expresses many truths. Um, and in the story of the Exodus, the truth that it wishes to express, if I understand you correctly, is that um, humanity is invited to learn that uh, there is a singular God um, who is extremely different in intentionality from a uh, polytheistic human God as represented by Pharaoh. Yes? Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and, and not only that, but I would say the other gods of the area. So, for instance, Baal, uh, whom the Canaanites worship, or, or in Egypt, Ra. Uh, all those gods are false gods, and it is the god uh, of the Torah, the god of the Bible, who, in fact, is the creator god uh, and whose laws we need to heed. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that it is an instruction book about what it means to be a human being, and that is to live in covenant with the God of the universe. Okay, so um, if we accept that as a first premise for reading the text, then is the notion of the um, plagues simply a, a reminder of the power of um, this universal God, or does it serve uh, a different purpose? No, I think it is the power, but it's also something else. So when we say that, that, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, we have all seen uh, rulers who, uh, in contradistinction to uh, the truth, or to even what they know will be successful, continue on... Uh, their, uh, or their way of proclaiming the fact that they are in control. Uh, there was a book some years ago called The March of Folly by the historian Barbara Tuckman, in which she talks about uh, wars that were waged by governments who knew that they were going to lose and nonetheless persisted in their obstinacy. Well, that's what, that's what we have here. We have a, a human being who persists in his obstinacy to try to proclaim uh, that he is uh, the law, and and what he proclaims will be the destiny of humanity. And it's clearly wrong. It's clearly wrong. Uh, and he will perish from the scene. So it's not about... Our, we have a Western 
uh, obviously philosophical discussion over uh, uh, self-determination uh, versus determinism. And I don't think that's what this is about, frankly. I think that's the wrong discussion here. I think the discussion is uh, not whether Pharaoh had free will, uh, but uh, those folks who set themselves up as rulers over human beings uh, and that they are destined, when they don't have the good intention of their subjects in mind, they are destined to fail. Um, do you think, as you consider uh, the really interesting analysis that you've offered, that the authors of the text had the same intentionality that you're describing? Or do you think that this is an intentionality that um, we of a different um, time and place have read into the text? So I think that this is the intention of the Bible. And let me give you an illustration. Uh, Professor Ellen Davis of Duke, who I mentioned in the previous uh, time that we were together, uh, in her book, Opening Israel's Scriptures, talks about the use of the word Bekev Shuha, uh, and you shall conquer it in, in both Genesis uh, and, and then later in the Torah. And, and the, that word, and you shall conquer it, is used uh, for humanity in the first chapters, of, uh, when, um, after Noah, when humanity is told that they will conquer the earth, and, and she claims, Professor Davis claims, uh, that the word Mekishua is only used uh, when a commandment is being given to conquer a land which is going to be opposition that is contrary to God. In other words, God's intention is for humanity to control the world and for Israel to control the land of, of Israel, and through that to achieve God's purposes. Now, who's the opposition? The opposition is those people who don't want to achieve God's purposes, and the language of the Bible is clearly structured to say, this is a book about truth, and the truth is that there is a God who is created, uh, and we live under that God, and we are to pursue that God's plan. So uh, the plan is uh, that God has a purpose for humanity, and we are supposed to fulfill that. The role of Israel is to fulfill that and to be, in Isaiah's terminology, unlike to the nations. But all of the people of the world, as we see in Genesis, are also to be part of that plan. And here, this demonstration project, this is carried out. So that later on, you're going to see that the Moabites say, uh, we, we, we understand what's going on here. We see the power of your God. And we're, uh, we, in, in the case of the Edomites and the Moabites, we're going to oppose that. But in the book of Joshua, you see Rachav, right, who helps the spies. Okay, Rachav goes, you know what? I heard the rumors. I know that your God is God. Let me give you a hand. Okay. So, as we began talking about the um, plagues, and you've offered um, a somewhat uh, different interpretation of, for our listeners than they usually hear. Um, let's continue um, with an exploration of uh, the end of the story, in which um, most of our listeners will be very uh, familiar with the fact that the story introduces 
um, this festival, which is called in the text the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and it's not called initially Passover. Uh, right. So as you understand it, and as you read the text, why does the initial uh, nomenclature call for the holiday to be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's associated with the 14th day of what's uh, claimed in the Torah to be the first month of the year without naming the month, Um, but it will lead to the Hebrew calendar identifying the calendar of months beginning in the spring rather than in January or the fall. Um, So how do you understand this first um, initiation of a holiday, which will be extremely important even to this day, uh, but having a name that's very different? Yeah, so, so in, the, in the Torah, there are two different holidays. One, as you point out, is the 14th of the month of Nisan, uh, which in, in uh, our calendar is the first of the month. And, and that is the day on which the Passover sacrifice, which was a spring sacrifice, it's, uh, it's, that's not the way it's commemorated in Christianity, but in the Bible it's a spring sacrifice. And uh, the Passover offering, therefore, was to be offered, uh, well, there's a difference about this, but somewhere between the 10th and the 14th of the month of Nisan, and then to be consumed uh, in commemoration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the night of the 15th. So, obviously, the temples could destroy destroyed 2,000 years ago. We no longer have uh, a sacrificial system in Judaism, and so the name Passover, Pesach, uh, went from the Pesach offering to the entire holiday, uh, which are in the Bible is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, let me just say about the uh, the unleavened bread that it becomes a symbol in both Christian scripture and in Jewish life of the ferment uh, that is in the dough, which is taken to be a symbol of the evil within human beings. As I say, this is both in Christian scripture, uh, New Testament, and uh, in Jewish practice. And so we have a, a holiday here which commemorates the fact uh, that we that we do transgress against God, uh, but we have this time of renewal known as a seven-day period known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which we eat bread that reminds us to get the fermentation out of ourselves uh, and to return to God. Much as six months later there will be a Yom Kippur, but not precisely the same. So once again, you're suggesting that um, the con the the contextual nature of the story um, takes a back seat to what will eventually be understood about the story, namely that um, the story tells us about a sacrifice. Um, it says that we shall have a uh, lamb that is eaten. It doesn't use the word sacrifice in this narrative, but it says that this will be eaten in family groups and it will be eaten with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. 
Um, that's at the end of the parasha. And this will be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and you're suggesting that the very nature of it is about springtime, um, which will see itself most uh, completely expressed in the temple sacrificial cult. Have I heard you correctly? Uh, yes, let me add to that. However, that, that just is the root experience. The Exodus is the root experience of the Jewish people, not Sinai and the Revelation, uh, but the Exodus, which is mentioned constantly in Jewish liturgy, multiple times daily, uh, in which we remind ourselves that God brought us out of Egypt, and therefore we are uh, to give our lives over to God as a sort of vol- a voluntary servitude uh, to the Master and the Creator of all the universe. And so uh, we have this holiday which, which reminds us not only of our origins, but the nature of our being, and that is, uh, that we are to serve God through doing God's commandments and being a blessing to humanity. And so we constantly tell the story of what it means to be human, and in this case, what it means to be a Jew, uh, which is service to God and, ser- and service to the world. So uh, it's not just a spring holiday, certainly, uh, and it's not even just a matter of the uh, unleavened that is within us, but also what it means uh, to live a life as as God's people. So you've mentioned, which um, many of the listeners may be unfamiliar with, that the story of the Exodus, which is known in Hebrew as Yitziat Mitzrayim, is mentioned very often in liturgy. Um, And that makes us uh, aware of the essential importance of leaving of Egypt in the Jewish experience. So in the little bit of time that's left to us, could you just explicate on that a bit more? Why does um, leaving Egypt have a higher uh, role in the historical memory than even Sinai? So uh, the Psalms say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they who dwell therein. So what does that mean? Uh, the earth belongs to God. So are we simply put here to do as we will? Uh, uh, we are totally self-determining, and uh, we can do whatever we want with our lives. Well, we certainly have the free will to do that, uh, but it will end up badly. Uh, and we've seen that, of course, in the history of humanity time and again. When we only follow, follow our own hearts and our own desires, things just tend not to go well for us. Uh, so there is this notion of uh, human servitude to a human being, and that's what you have exemplified in Egypt. So we, that doesn't work out uh, uh, for anybody uh, in the history of slavery, in the history of humanity. So what do we want? How are we going to live? Well, we're going to live by uh, a sense of how the world is to be, and that is that God created it for a purpose. So first we say, there is a God. There's a creator. That's why we have this Bible. It says there's a creator. But not only that, this creator has a, is a, is a purposeful creation. It's a benign creation. It's a not even benign. It's a benevolent creation for which human beings have a place. I think, I think, Rabbi, we're going to have to leave it there as we've run out of time and we've just begun to unpack the power of this week's Torah portion. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Mark Levin. Um, from uh, Overland Prairie Village, Kansas. 
I want to thank him for joining us on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. You can hear a podcast of this morning's broadcast on iTunes or on the chri.ca website Um, for Rabbi Levin and for myself, Rabbi Stephen Garten. I wish you shalom and have a good day. Behold.